He is a miserable man because he's, because he's describing that time when he had unrepented sin in his life. And I'll tell you, it's not the lost man that's the most miserable man. It's the saved man who has tasted the goodness of God, but is living out of fellowship with God. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We recently began a new series going through the book of Jonah. In this series, Pastor Brogy is examining both the historicity and the relevance of this great book. In today's message, we'll be looking at how Jonah's disobedience affected his relationship with God. Let's join Dr. Brogy now. The reason he fled is because he was a patriot, and his patriotism was driven by his theology. Let me read chapter 4 and verse 2. He prayed, that is Jonah, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. See, Jonah did not want to preach this message of grace because he knew that if Nineveh repented, then God would spare Nineveh. And because Jonah loved his nation, he wanted the Ninevites to be judged. Now, remember, we covered some of this in the introductory message. Remember, the northern kingdom had been living in disobedience. And there were three prophets who were contemporaries of Jonah, one Isaiah, two Amos, and three Hosea. And when you read those men, their preaching and message to the northern kingdom was the same. God is sick and tired of your disobedience. And if you do not repent as the people of God, he's going to bring a nation down from the north and he's going to discipline you. Amos warned Israel, therefore, Amos 5, 27, therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus. That's Assyria. I'll make you go in exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Hosea 9 said, They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they, the northern kingdom, will eat unclean food. In Hosea 11 and verse 5, God again underscored the captor would be Assyria. They will not return to the land of Egypt. That will not be the place of captivity at this time. You're not going back to, to be prisoners in Egypt like they were in Moses' day. But where are you going to go? Assyria. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king because they refuse to return to me. Now, I won't take the time, but jot down Isaiah 7, 17 to 25. Isaiah gives an extended prophecy, giving the details of what the Assyrian captors are going to accomplish. Now, if you know me, I love this country with its many flaws. And if I could have served to defend our nation, I would have, but my left arm kept me from doing so, even if I wanted to. My father served in the Second World War and the Korean War, and I have two sons who are Marines. I love this nation, and many of you do, and yet I am equally disgusted with the shameful ways in which we have gone. And certainly no nation is perfect any more than there are any 
perfect churches in America, and it's still in many ways the greatest nation on the face of the earth. That's why people are clawing their way to want to come into it. Some, I suppose, no doubt to destroy us, but they want to come here because it's the land of promise. And God's Word teaches in the Torah that we should be compassionate to the alien and the foreigner who wants to come in. But he also underscored that there were certain parameters by which someone could come in. And the New Testament teaches the same truth in Acts, that there are borders that God established because without borders you have no nation these drugs are coming in that we're not even talking about. Marijuana that's 20 times stronger than the pot people spoke 30, smoked 30 years ago, and it's destroying. We've gone in three years from 20,000 overdoses resulting in death to over 100,000. There are things that are happening that are beyond belief. And yet, though we had a faulty start, nonetheless... The problem was not our ancestors. The problem is fallen man. That's the problem. That's always the problem. And at least we had enough moxie to repent of some of our former evils. But the problem is that man is sinful. Now put yourself for a moment in Jonah's shoes. As much as I love the United States, Jonah loves his land, Israel. But suppose for the sake of argument, In this day, I am called to go to Beijing to preach to communist China. Now, again, there's a lot of believers in communist China, maybe as many as 100 million. I've been there a few times. There are great people, those who know and love the Lord. But there's a lot of godless people who want to destroy America. We're feeding the bear that's probably going to eat us unless we wake up. But I am supposed to go to Beijing and to preach because there's a message that God is going to destroy China. But there's also a message that if God doesn't destroy China, then God's going to use China to destroy America. So what am I to do? That's really what Jonah is facing. To put it in more Jewish terms, you're a Jew living in New York City during the Second World War. You have been witnessing the destruction of your own people being annihilated in the gas chambers and starved to death. And yet you're called by God to go and preach to the German people. Again, many good German people today. You should pray for the German church. Many great things in the church in America today come out of the Reformation that took place in Germany. So I'm not ragging on Germans. Save your letters. But you're supposed to go and preach to Hitler and the German people, because if they repent this wicked people... God will spare them, but there's also a message that if God spares them, given enough time, they will come and destroy you. So here's Jonah. He's a patriot. He understands the cruelty of the Assyrian people, and God wants to give them this message of grace that they might repent and not be destroyed. And yet in the same breath, he's got some other contemporary prophets who are saying there's coming a point where they're going to come down and they are going to crush you. So what are you going to do? 
Well, he'd rather go on a Mediterranean cruise as a tourist than be a prophet at this point. But when he turns in his prophet's badge, as we'll see next time, you can't resign as a prophet. The real issue is that he has a clear word from God concerning God's plan and will for his life, and he has to choose whether or not he's going to obey it. Now, as we work through this short little book, we're going to see four constructs, four biblical principles unfold concerning the will of God. Let me introduce you to them this morning, and then as we work through Jonah, we will highlight the various aspects of them. Number one, four applications concerning the will of God. Number one, the will of God is as flawless as God is. The will of God is flawless, is as flawless as God is. God's will is flawless, not only in prospect, but in retrospect. Jot down Romans 12, 1 and 2. Most of you have it memorized. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's writing to believers in Rome. He has just described 11 chapters concerning the grace and mercy of God. In light of that, therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God I've just described, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Then he adds, and do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to notice here in verse two, the three descriptive words concerning the will of God. First of all, it is good. The will of God is good, and it is as good as God himself. And that's why it demands our obedience, because God's plan, God's will for your life and for mine is good. And only a renewed mind can embrace that. Joseph embraced it. He was accused as being a sex offender. He was accused of rape, and he never came close to the woman and ran from the woman and ended up in jail. But he understood that this was part of God's good will for his life, and so he will later testify to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Only a renewed mind can embrace the will of God as good. And Satan will try to convince you that the will of God is not good. That God is ripping you off. That he has a better plan for you. And when you are in the center of God's will, you will know it is good. But not only is it good, it is acceptable. Uh, The ESV says it's pleasing. The Net Bible says it is well-pleasing. And again, for the growing, maturing will, a believer, he realizes God's will is just a wonderful thing. It just delights my heart. It pleases my heart. It is acceptable for my life. In Abraham, we have an example of a believer who found the will of God to be acceptable. Hard as it was, God told him to take Yitzhak, Isaac, up to the top of Mount Moriah, He's somewhere between 20 and 30 years of age. He's not a little boy. He has the ability, if he so chose, to overthrow that old man. But because he's a picture of Christ and because he too is walking in faith, like Jesus, no one will take my life, I will give it. 
and he binds him on the altar, and God says, I want you to take that knife and put it through his chest, and then I want you to burn him into a piece of ash. But they both believe that they're going to come back together. But Abraham saw this as part of God's acceptable will because he know it came from the mouth of a good and holy God. The Bible says his commandments are not a burden. And by the way, this will can be proved. It's the Greek word dokimazo that means to test and to prove by experience. It's used in the Septuagint of David who said, no, I haven't proved that armor. I can't say for sure that that armor is reliable, Saul. It is something that can be proved in the laboratory of life is that which is good and acceptable. Look at the third word, perfect, perfect. When the will of God is characterized by perfect, we need to understand there's a number of times in the Bible in our English text where the word is translated perfect and it's used in different ways. One is the word akrizo, and we get our word accurate from it and it describes something that is precise. There's another word that is used to describe something that is well-fitted for a specific end, like the perfect solution, say, to some problem or puzzle. But the word that's used in Romans 12 and verse 2 is the word teleos that is sometimes translated mature or complete. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is underscoring is that the will of God, that it is good and acceptable, it's perfect, it's complete, it's not lacking in any respect. It is so perfect, you cannot add anything to it to make it better. You can't take anything from it, somehow improving it. It is good, it is acceptable, it is perfect, which is why Proverbs says in the third chapter, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Please note, he doesn't say don't use your understanding, just don't lean on it, don't trust in it. Your understanding needs to come from a regenerated mind that comes from the Bible. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Listen, God is more interested in revealing his will than you are in knowing it. He wants to make your path straight. King David said it this way, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of the heart. The Hebrew text means the, the, the desires you have in your heart when you're delighting in God is they'll originate from him and they'll be consistent with his word. Someone once said to me, because of his false view of God, he said, Pastor Carl, I'm not sure this ministry is like what I should be doing. I said, what do you mean? It's too much fun. Man, I'm loving it. I'm getting paid to do it. He had a wrong view of God. When you're in the center of God's will, it should be fun. Doesn't mean it's not hard work and at times exhausting, but it's a delight. That's the way God made life to be. It is good, it is acceptable, it is perfect. The will of God is flawless. Secondly, the will of God is found in the word of God. That's the second construct that we will see underscored in the prophet Jonah. The will of God is found in the word of God. This is why it is essential that we saturate our mind with scripture. The great Presbyterian preacher who 
did not embrace replacement theology, one of the rare Presbyterians who said, no, the church is not the new Israel. His name was Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he said 90% of the will of God is from the neck up. His point is, is that it's based on God's word. It's not based on experience. It's based on the truth of God's Word. And that's why it is essential that we saturate our minds with God's Word. It is far easier to find the will of God for your life when you're in the book. And it is far more difficult to find God's will when you're not in the book. And that's why Satan and all of his craftiness and methodologies has taken the Bible out of the pulpit. The average sermon in America, in early America, was an hour and a half. I preach for an hour most weeks, sometimes longer. Somebody said to me, if you cut your sermons in half, so many more people would come. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in growing a church for numbers sake. I'm interested in building disciples. And if it's too long, there's the door. And I don't say that in arrogance. I say it based on what God calls me to do as a pastor. And the evil one has buffaloed the evangelical church. And that's why so many are apostatizing or coming up with new twisted doctrines. So yes, we took someone off the radio this week because he has this new view, a term that he coined all by himself that no one has held to in 2,000 years ago except Seventh-day Adventists that you're judged in the light you have such that if you obey the light you have and you don't believe in Jesus, you can still go to heaven. No, you must be born again to see the inside of the kingdom of God. And you can only be born again by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, the will of God is found in my willingness to obey it. It's flawless. It's found in Scripture. But God's will is also found in my willingness to obey it. You see, the real issue is not so much God's will as as it is my will. So the key to finding God's will that you do not know is obeying the will of God that you do not know. Jot down this verse, John 7, 17. Jesus said this, the occasion was to some unbelieving Pharisees. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Now that's a powerful, powerful statement. You see, some people are never able to embrace the truth for the simple reason they don't really want the truth. And that's why Jesus said, unless you change your mind, unless you repent, you will perish. See, if a person is not willing to obey God's will, then they will never really discover it to be true. So you're dealing with some person, they're living in some immoral relationship, and you talk to them about their need to receive Christ as their Lord, and they begin to say, well, I'm not sure the Bible's true. I'm not sure there is a God, but they know the Bible's true because it's alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And when you share it, even though they say it's not true, it's poking the heart. They know there's a God because creation and conscience is shouting it. I'm not sure there's a heaven. I'm not sure there's a hell. And you begin to talk to them. You seem to make zero progress. You see, the real problem is not our apologetic because there's a plethora of information to show the uniqueness of the Christian message. The real problem is their will. 
they don't want God's will. They know it's a sin to commit adultery. Why? Because not only is it written on tablets of stone, it's written in the heart. And so the Gentiles not having the law or law unto themselves, showing the work of the law with their conscience defending them or accusing them. And so until they face their sin, until they come to grips with the reality that we are all rebels by nature, they will never come to Christ. So if you're not willing to do God's will, then the Spirit of God can never open your eyes up. But if you do respond to the light you have, God will give you more light, and ultimately he will give you the plan of salvation. And let me just say that there are hundreds of people who are on these three campuses who have come to Christ simply because they said, I want to know. I want you to show me, Lord. And when that is your heart, you will know whether this is sourced in heaven or manufactured in Nazareth. You will know precisely what truth is. And by the way, if you're born again, God will also help you to find his will when you are obeying him. Because when you obey what you know, it's like going through a mind with a lamp on. You can only see so many feet, but if the lamp's on, you can go the next 10 feet, the next 10 feet, and he will unfold his will forth. And finally, well, let me just camp here for another second before I leave it. I got a couple more things I want to say. Let me tell you something that happened to me as a new Christian. Dr. Bill Bright, he was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he was speaking to us. I felt very privileged to hear him that day because there was just a small group of us. And Campus Crusade was a great organization. And there are many great people that this church supports, but they're on the slide. They're beginning to waffle just like people all across America are. But Dr. Bright said, he gave us this note-taking outline. The third sheet at the top said, the will of God for your life. And the bottom line was a signature line. It was a blank page. He said, I want you to present yourself tonight to the Lord. And if you're willing to present yourself to him without any reservation, just sign the bottom line. See, a lot of us, we, we, we want to see the details. You know, well, give me the specifics before I can sign it. No, he was underscoring, we have to be willing to say anything you want me to do, anything you want me to say, anywhere you want me to go, anything you want me to give, I'm totally yours. I'm a living and holy sacrifice. And when we present ourselves to God in that way, you will indeed discover the will and the plan that he has for your life. Now the fourth principle, the will of God is always costly when disobeyed. It's always costly when you disobey it. Disobedience to God's will is always costly. It's a colossal waste of time. They left Egypt to go to the promised land. It should have taken 11 or 12 days. It took 40 years. God had Moses send in 12 spies not to see if they could take it. It was promised, but how they would take it. Ten came back, the majority report, we can't go in there. There's giants in the land. We're just like grasshoppers. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go in. We can take it just as he promised. Now they saw the same giants, but they saw a great God. See, the minority report emphasized the problems. These guys underscored the promise. 
that God is great, that he can accomplish precisely that which he has promised. After all, he split the Red Sea. After all, he brought us out of Egypt with these 10 mighty plagues. We need to believe God and not repeat history. But when we disobey God, we lose. King David described it after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Two great Psalms that unfold his time of grief and what it was like in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. And sin, it just, well, it prematurely ages you. It takes you down a lot quicker than God would have liked you to have lived possibly. But he is a miserable man because he's because he's describing that time when he had unrepented sin in his life. And I'll tell you, it's not the lost man that's the most miserable man. It's the saved man who's tasted the goodness of God, but is living out of fellowship with God. Some years ago when Audrey and I were living in Dallas, Texas, I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas, and we would share the gospels trying to reach CEOs of major corporations and they had ministries to reach the down and outers, and they had ministries in that organization we worked for to reach the up and outers. And I shared the gospel with this 58-year-old man. He was a multimillionaire, owned the largest Mercedes dealership in the world. And he bowed his head there in that country club, and he asked Christ to be his Savior. And I met with him for the next seven or eight weeks. And then I was leaving Dallas to come and pastor this church. And he said to me, I'll never forget it. Jim said to me, Carl, I must be the most fulfilled man in the city of Dallas. My only regret is that I wasted 58 years before I found Christ. And I hope you see this morning, if you know Christ, the problem is not in finding God's will, it's in doing God's will. And one minute out of the will of God is a colossal waste of time. And if you've never met Christ, if you've never been born again, he laid his life down for you, made a full payment for your sin, proved his ability to do it when God raised him from the dead. And if you will come in humility and trust him to forgive you and change you, he'll save you in a moment's time. Now, our Father, we thank you for the chance to study this great prophet of God Help us in the weeks ahead to be changed by our exposure to the message that he recorded for us. I pray today, Father, for someone who's within the sound of my voice, maybe live streaming, maybe in Graniteville and Grays or in this auditorium or in one of the overflow rooms, and they're unsure of their eternal destiny. They've never called upon Christ in faith. Help them with humility of heart to simply say, Lord Jesus save me. And Father, I pray for those who have done that. We know that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And that even independent of Satan, sometimes we are just carried away, your word said, by our own fallen nature. Help us to see that your will and your plans for our life are nothing but good and acceptable and perfect. May we live to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Sin in the life of a believer can cause him to be miserable. 
Such was true in Jonah's day and is true in our own. If you'd like a copy of today's message again, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH2. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we continue our study of the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.